Our scripture passage for today comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 16, verses 24 to 28. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everybody. Thanks be to God for his public preaching of the word. Good to see all of you. What a lousy Sunday, but what a glorious time that we have right now. So pardon me as I increase this. Let's pray together. Father, we ask now that you would be with us as we come before you to sit at your feet and to learn from your word. Lord, we are so grateful for the opportunity to learn from the God of heaven and earth. For Father, we are bombarded from all sources of knowledge, all claims of truth, saying that if we heed, if we believe, if we follow, that we would be set free. And yet, Lord, we know so many have been enslaved by deceptions and lies. And Father, Lord, we pray that you would guard our hearts from being deceived both by the world or by our own flesh, and that we would be liberated by the only truth that is the freeing truth, the truth of our God. Father, we pray that you would humble us so that we could submit ourselves to the authority that comes by the preaching of your word and that you would bless this message in spite of the one who brings it. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. You know, back in the 1980s, there was a popular rock band by the name of Fleetwood Mac. And one of the songs that made them so popular was the song Little Lies. I personally never liked the song at all. I thought it was terrible, but it did have a pretty interesting sounding line that went like this. Tell me lies, tell me sweet little lies. Tell me lies, tell me, tell me lies. It's kind of weird, isn't it? For a person to ask another to lie to them, why would anyone in their right mind ever want someone to lie to them? You would think no one, right? But then again, I guess it is true that sometimes the truth hurts. Don't they say that? And of course, we can confirm and perhaps people would prefer the comforts and convenience of believing a lie than the uncomfortable inconvenience of having to face the truth. Now, I know some of you in here would want to defend your personal status as a Christian and say, well, pastor, that ain't me. I'm a true, devout follower of Jesus. I am a disciple of Christ, and I'm all about the truth. Bring it on, pastor. No matter how inconvenient, how uncomfortable the truth may be, I will always choose that over any comfortable, convenient lie. You believe me, right, PJ? To which I would respond, I don't know. And please don't take offense by me saying that. I'm just trying to be real. Because do you know what the reality is? The reality is that many Christians in this country and perhaps some Christians in this classroom have bought into certain lies about their God that they believe over and above the counterfeit truth that we should be 
embracing. And today I want to talk about one of the most pervasive popular lies that Christians have about their God. Why? Because we're in the beginnings of a sermon series entitled Lies Christians Believe. And the whole point of this series is to deconstruct the pervasive lies that many believers have about God. Lies that scripture says we should never embrace because they are fundamentally false. And as I said a moment ago, today we're going to talk about one of the most pervasive popular lies Christians have about God today. And that's the lie that goes like like this. God wants me to be happy. Out of all the things that God wants for my life, first and foremost, my God wants me to be happy. Have you heard that before? God wants me to be happy? Well, as we take a look at a very well-known passage of scripture in Matthew's gospel, the 16th chapter, we're going to find that's actually not true at all, and we're going to discover what God really wants from us. So with that in mind, three things I'd like to share with you today. First, we're going to talk about what God really wants. And then we're going to talk about why God wants it from you. And then we're going to end it with how we can give it to him. What God really wants for us, why he wants it for us, and how we can give it to him. All right, let's begin with the first point. What God really wants from you. A few years ago, the co-pastor of the largest church in America ended the service by saying these words, quote, I just want to encourage every one of us to realize that when we obey God, we're not doing it for God. I mean, that's one way to look at it. We're doing it for ourselves because God takes pleasure when we're happy. So I want you to know this morning, just do good for your own self. Do good because God wants you to be happy. As you can see, those words came out of the mouth of Pastor Victoria Osteen, who is the wife of the famed Joel Osteen of Lakewood Church. And the fact that these words came out of one of the largest Christian platforms in the world tells us that you and I are living in a world filled with Christians who have bought into this idea, hook, line, and sinker, that the thing that God wants more than anything is just for your happiness. So many Christians think in their heart of hearts that as long as we're happy, God is happy. That's all he cares about. And this actually has been empirically verified. A few years ago, a very prominent uh, sociologist by the name of Christian Smith wrote a book that pretty much made him the famous man that he is today. He teaches at the University of Notre Dame. The title of his book, Soul Searching, a massive research tomb that he put together where he surveyed the religious beliefs of American teenagers. And at the end of this book, he says these startling words about American teenagers today, quote, according to a high majority of teenagers in America, the central goal of life is to be happy. According to most teenagers today, the central goal in life for them, and if they're believers, the main will of God for them is to be happy. Now, where in the world do you think young people today have gotten these ideas? Where do you think they're learning this concept? Well, according to Dr. Smith, he came to discover that the biggest influencers of the forming of thinking of teenagers today is who? It's not their youth pastors. It's not their friends in youth group. It's not their favorite celebrities on social media. Do you know who the most crucial influencers who shape the minds of young people today are? Mom and dad. That's right. Parents are the biggest influencers of how young people think, which tells us if most American teenagers think this way, that also means most American adults, most Christian households have bought into this belief. Oh, yes, indeed, the words that Victoria Osteen may not be true, but in the minds of so many Christians today, they think it is. But here's the question. What does our God, what does our Lord have to say on this matter? Well, let's give him an opportunity 
to speak for himself. In verse 24, he says this, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Follow me. The thing that Jesus wants for us, the thing that our God wants for us more than anything is for us to follow him. He wants our followership. Now, when you realize that, then you come to grasp that what Pastor Victoria was saying to her church and what Jesus is saying to the church are complete polar opposites. Why? Because the notion of our happiness is hardly ever, no, dare I say, it's never associated with following. I mean, parents, you can attest to this, can't you? Think about the moments when your children were the most happiest under your supervision. Were they the happiest when they were following your commands, your following your orders, following your rules? No, I don't think so, okay? If they are, have them come see me, maybe do some counseling, okay? Or think back when you were young, for those of you non-parents, when you were under the roof of mom and dad, when were you the most happiest around them? Was it when you were following their expectations, following their commands, following their rules? Of course not. Why? Because we never connect the idea of our happiness with following somebody. And why? Because we all have an unconscious negative assumption when it comes to the idea of following somebody else. And according to Pastor Joel Stoll, he says this, quote, Our struggle is that it's just plain difficult to be a follower. We get and give the impression that followers are limp, vulnerable, weak, controlled by others, and lacking in initiative. I don't know whether kids still play follow the leader, but I can remember spending some of my wasted youth in the pursuit. Interestingly, I always wanted to be the leader. In fact, so did just about everyone else. The reason? The leader was always right, never caught off guard, and never embarrassed by having to imitate others. It's like playing Simon Says. The leader always looks good, and the followers are the ones who stumble and can't quite keep up. All of life and its outcomes rises and falls on whether or not we will choose to be the leader of our own destiny or a follower of someone else. And when it comes to the life choices that matter most, we resist yielding control, end quote. We would never connect the idea of our happiness to following someone because we presume that if we ever followed somebody, we risk the possibility that they may not be able or even interested in leading us to a place that would make us happy. In fact, it could actually be worse. We could possibly be led by somebody who would make us unhappy, make us miserable, make us suffer, and no way would we ever consider following someone that would possibly lead us to that kind of possible outcome right well someone should have told that to jesus because do you know what he says before he tells us what he wants us the most to follow and what does he say take up the cross take up the cross now you don't have to be a christian you don't have to know bible you know language to know what he means because we say this phrase all the time the way we put it is my cross to bear right people say that all the time and when do people usually say that expression is it when they're happy and jovial and go giddy, like, oh, being this beautiful, being this successful, being this amazing, is my cross to bear? Do people say that? Not really, at least not in a serious manner. No, people only say that when they're going through a trial, a tribulation, pain, sorrow, suffering. Oh, being married to that jerk is my cross to bear. Having to pay my mother-in-law's never-ending medical bills, that's my cross to bear. The phrase cross to bear or take up the cross, Jesus connects 
to following him. And if following him is what he wants for us more than anything, then what does that tell us? It tells us that the thing that God wants for us is not our happiness, it's our suffering. Let me say that again. The thing that God wants for us is not our happiness, but our suffering. Listen to what he says in Matthew 10. Look, I, Jesus, am sending you out as sheep among wolves. So be as shrewd as snake and harmless as doves. But beware, for you will be handed over to the courts and will be flogged with whips in the synagogues. You will stand trial before governors and kings because you are my followers. A brother will betray his brother to death. A father will betray his own child. And children will rebel against parents and cause them to be killed. And all nations will hate you because you are my followers. But everyone who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus makes it clear. If you want to follow him, you will suffer. And if God wants your followership more than anything else, he wants your suffering. Now, for those of you here investigating Christianity, you're probably thinking to yourself, uh, Pastor, you know I'm not a Christian, right? <laughs> and isn't your job to try and persuade me to become a Christian? I'll tell you right now, you're doing a terrible job, Pastor, because why in the world, if what you're saying is true, would anyone with a brain ever consider wanting to take Jesus' offer to follow him. Why would anyone want to go and suffer in life? Well, let me see if I can make some sense of it to you by going to my next point, why God wants it from you. In verses 25 to 26, Jesus explains why God wants us to suffer. And when you understand his explanation, your mind is going to explode because it's so profound. Take a listen to what he says in verse 25, but pay special attention to how Jesus uses his words. He says this, for whoever will save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, for those of you who are familiar with the Bible, you'll notice that he sounds a lot like the Old Testament wisdom books, books like Job, Psalms, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. Why? Because he is employing a literary feature that is so pervasive in those books. And of course, I'm talking about the antithetical parallelism. The what? The antithetical parallelism. You're like, what is that? Well, you would know if you took Ask the Bible. ATB, represent, right? That's right. If you took that class taught by moi, you would know exactly what I mean. I know everyone's genius smiling because she knows exactly what I'm talking about, right? Antithetical parallelism, what is that? It's when you have two polar opposite ideas written right next to each other in an even symmetrical way to spotlight the crucial differences between them. Let me give you a couple examples. Ecclesiastes 10.2, a wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Notice a very even written out passage of statements that spotlights the difference between a wise man and a fool. Or how about this? Proverbs 10.1. A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. Notice again the evenness, the symmetry to spotlight the differences between a wise son and a foolish son towards their respective parents. This is antithetical parallelism. Okay, And when you go back to verse 25 of our passage, you see it fits this description of that literary feature. But if you take a closer look to the two phrases Jesus puts back to back, it's not a perfect fit. Because in the second phrase, he adds three words that are not matched in the previous phrase. And those are the three words that says, for my sake. So, for example, instead of saying whoever will save his life will lose it, but whoever loses life will find it, he says for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses life for my sake will find it. 
Here's the question. What is the significance of those three words? For my sake. Jesus is trying to tell us something very profound about the reality you and I live in. And let me explain what that is with this illustration. You know, one of the pervasive criticisms that atheists have against Christians is that they'll say, oh, you Christians think that only people like you can be good people in this world. Yeah, you Christians think that only Christians can be good people. Now, maybe there are Christians out there who think this way. Hopefully none of them are in this room because that's absolutely false. Atheists are totally right to say, hey, you don't have to be a Christian to be a good person in this world. And I can attest to that because I have a lot of people I know personally, some of them who are close friends of mine, who are not believers, and they're good, decent people. It's true. But you know what else is true? What else is true is something that sounds very similar, and that's this. You don't have to be a Christian to suffer in this world. Just like you don't have to be a Christian to be a good person in this world, you don't have to be a Christian to suffer in this world. Do you know why? Because suffering is not a unique Christian experience. Suffering is a universal human experience. That's why. Yeah. Which means Jesus is seemed to be saying in those three words, if you think you can avoid suffering by not following me, think again. Everyone suffers, which means human being. You really have two options when it comes to how you live your life. Option A, you can suffer for my sake. Option B, you can suffer for no sake. No purpose, no point. What are you going to choose? You can suffer, option A, for Christ's sake, or you can suffer for no sake at all. No purpose, no meaning, no point. Think about that. And wonder, is this whole notion of trying to be happy, is this pursuit of happiness even something worth pursuing? In other words, is this even possible to be happy as our country, our culture claims it is? You know, they've been doing some numerous studies these days, and the resounding answer seems to be no. Because people who study happiness have always asked those that we imagine should be happy, the wealthy, the healthy, the safe, successful, the pretty, the popular. And across the board, people in these stages of life will say, no, I'm still not happy. I remember a few years ago, I was listening to an interview of a very beautiful, famous Hollywood celebrity. She's not as beautiful as my wife, obviously, but she admitted these words, quote, we are told, are you guys ready now? Okay, sorry, I shouldn't have said that, just distracting you. It's not a joke, it's fact, okay? (laughs) Listen to what this Hollywood celebrity says. We are told that if we're beautiful, skinny, successful, famous, and if we fit in, and if everyone loves us, that we'll be happy. And that is not that is not true? Let that marinate a little bit in your heart. And as it does, listen to what Jesus says in the very next verse. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Now, when most people read this verse, they think that what Jesus is saying here is that trying to be obsessed of gaining the whole world, which is another way of saying trying to just be happy all the time, right? You're going to end up in hell. (laughs) That's what most people think. In other words, when most people hear these words of Christ, they think what Jesus is saying is that if you only prioritize just being happy, you forfeit eternal life. Now, of course, that is what he's saying, but he's also saying more. And what more is he saying? Well, I believe Jesus, in that statement, is trying to teach us the precious, valuable worth of the human soul. What Jesus is trying to teach us here 
is that nothing compares in worth or value than to the human soul. In fact, this is confirmed with what he says in the very next <coughs> words that he says. Or what shall a man give in return for a soul? Or another translation puts it, is anything worth more than your soul? Jesus is telling us that there is nothing more precious, more valuable than the soul that you have. And why is your soul so precious? Scripture says because your soul is what gives you the ability as well as the desire to be like God. Let me say that again. The soul, according to Scripture, is the very means of giving you the ability to be like God. You know, the Bible teaches us that when God made man, human beings, he made him in his image, meaning he is capable of thinking, feeling, acting, reacting like God would in every circumstances that life could throw at us. No creature can imitate God like man because no creature bears the image of God like man. And the question is, when did man receive this capability to be like his God? Genesis 2-7 says, Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground, and he breathed the breath of life into the man's nostril, and the man became a living being. The moment God breathed his breath into Adam was the moment Adam had his soul because his soul and your soul is the breath of God itself, where his life pulsates and motivates and inspires you to imitate the one whose breath resides in you, your soul. That is what made Adam so valuable. And guess what? That's what makes you more precious, more valuable than anything or any other creature or any creation that God has made. And Jesus says, look, this is what you forfeit when you make it your ambition to gain the whole world. When all you care about is just to be happy, you are devaluing yourself. You're treating yourself with less worth than what you have. That's what Jesus is saying. And because that is true, that means the opposite must also be true. If you suffer, that's when you see the true worth and value you have as a human being. Jesus is wanting us to answer with our life this question. How can I suffer in such a way, since everyone's going to have to suffer anyway, how can I suffer in such a way that will show the worth and value I have as an image bearer of God? You see, the question we try to answer with our lives, how can we be so happy? No. The question God wants you to answer with your life is, how can I suffer in such a way that shows that I'm a person of worth, of value, of dignity? Now, if that sounds a little abstract and if that sounds something you've never heard before and you don't understand what that means, let me see if I can explain it by going to my final point. How we can give it to him. Remember, as I said just a moment ago, God made man in his image, therefore giving us the ability to be like him, to think like him, to act and react like him, to every experience that this reality gives to us, including our suffering. Which means, here's the question. Why does Jesus tell us in our passage right, to not make it our ambition to be happy all the time as we're living in this world? Right? Why? Why say don't be consumed with your comforts? Don't be so persistent of trying to have pleasures. Don't be obsessed of hoarding happiness. Why? Because the God who you're supposed to be like would never do that in that situation. That's why. The God whose image you bear, who you're supposed to act, think, and react like, would never, if he was living in a world filled with sorrows and pain and suffering, make it his priority to be happy all the time. In fact, if our God 
was in our shoes with flesh and blood, living in this world filled with sorrows and sufferings. He would not be fixated on how big of a house he can have, how big of a TV he can watch, how fast of a car he can drive, or what beautiful, expensive clothes he could wear. You know what our God would do? He would go to places and be amongst people who are suffering, who are sorrowful, and he would share and he would serve. How do I know? You know, because that's what he did. When God came into the world as a human being, Jesus Christ, did he make it a priority to be comfortable? Did he make it a priority to be happy? Did he make it a priority to all about his pleasures and his renown? No. Jesus came to do what God wants more, wants for us more than anything else. He came to suffer, right? He suffered by being a man of sorrow so he could be with sorrowful people. He came to suffer to where he was ashamed so he could be with those who are ashamed. He suffered by being treated like a sinner, even though he had no sin, so he could be among sinners. And he suffered first and foremost, the worst suffering of all that no human being will ever be able to compete with, by dying on the cross as our substitute Savior, where he came under the full wrath of God, though he was innocent and pure and holy. Why? Why did he do all this? He did this so that he could fulfill his primary mission. What was Jesus' primary mission when he came to earth? To give hope to those who are suffering. The primary mission of Christ is to give hope to those who are suffering. Now you might be wondering, what is this hope you're talking about, Pastor? What is this hope you speak of that Jesus came to give through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead? I can do no better than the one given by C.S. Lewis. This is from his book, Mere Christianity. This is what he says about hope. Quote, hope is a continual looking forward to the eternal world. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. Sadly, many of us are so tethered to this world and the things it offers that we scarcely take thought of the world to come. Yet it is precisely by reflecting often on the joys, beauties, and satisfaction of eternal life in the world to come that we find a hope that empowers us to live fully for Christ today. End quote. What is hope? Hope is the proper belief that true and genuine happiness is not found in a limited life, temporary life filled with sorrows and sufferings. No. Hope is the proper understanding that true genuine happiness is found in eternal life, in the full presence of a gracious and loving God. Let me say that again. Hope is the proper understanding that true happiness is found in eternal life in the full, unmediated, loving presence of God. And when you take this hope by turning away from your sins and start following your Savior, that hope is what secures your happiness that no suffering in this world could ever rob you of, take away from you, or shatter which means whatever suffering that you go through in this life, you'll emerge out of it, able to reveal that you're still a person of worth. You're not going to be bitter. You're not going to be jaded. You're going to be better. You're going to be joyful. You're not going to be victim-minded. You're going to feel victorious because suffering will not degrade your character. You will not turn into a villain. You will not get so angry and become an evil person thinking that the world owes you. Because happiness has been robbed from you? No. 
because of what Jesus did, he secured genuine, true happiness that even the best of this life cannot even offer. And thereby, you can face whatever suffering that you face and come out of it revealing what value and worth God endowed you with when he made you in his image. Do you see? This is what God wants more than anything else. He wants your hopefulness, not your happiness. Let me say that again. The thing God wants more for you than anything else is your hopefulness, not your happiness. The hope of eternal life, the hope of joy and bliss, knowing that anything that you lost, anyone who was taken from you gets restored and renewed because God is the source of life, of joy, of love. Do you see? If you do, may I challenge you to forsake this pursuit of happiness that this culture is always tantalizing you to pursue and instead follow the one who suffered for you because of the hope he has for you, for me. Eternal happiness with your Father, with the Son, and the Spirit, as well as the evidence of that love whether it be through your children, whether it be through your family, your friends, all that is worth that God is the source of. May you be challenged to follow your Christ because you make it your priority to be hopeful, not happy. Amen? Let's pray. Father, as we think more and more about what you want for us more than anything, Forgive us for the way that we got deceived and allowed ourselves to be deceived by our culture, by the world, by the enemy, by money, by comfort, status, of making happiness the be-all and end-all of life. Father, you call us to be people of hope, not people of happiness. Because as far as we are concerned in this life, true, genuine happiness is not found, but it is hinted at in the life to come that only comes through your son, Jesus. Father, thank you that you have made a pathway for us as well as secured the treasure trove of happiness, true happiness, through our faith in your son by your power of your spirit working in us. Father, help us to always remember that whatever suffering we go through does not rob us of the dignity and value and worth that we have as your image bearers. And so, Father, let us not devalue ourselves by the way we respond or react to whatever unjust treatment that we get in this world, in this life, so that instead we can emerge as people of hope, maintaining good character, maintaining integrity, maintaining a confidence that inspires us to be righteous people so that the people around us would know that there is a God and he is worth following. Lord, help us to live out this message every single day of our life, for there is not a moment where we are not bombarded to the Believe the deceptions of this world. God, help us to remember this every day, every moment of our lives as we live in this broken world. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. We're not